I've got a question for you, and I'm looking at the audience, and this is probably not for everyone. Only a few of you will be able to raise your hands with this question. How many of you are alive in 1973? All right, raise them high, those of you who are alive. Good. All right, about 10 of you. That's good. I was too. I, in 1973, I was three months old. All right, so I just barely made it. 1973 was my first full year, and uh, I am probably the way I am because of the events of 1973. So let me give you, those of you who are not alive, I'm going to give you a little history lesson, all right? Kind of go back, and I'll teach you what it was like in those early years of the 70s. Those of you who are alive will reminisce, all right? It started with, uh, in January of 1973, with the stock market crashing, all right? So bad start to my life, right? The stock market crashed and it went, went down about 45%. That's pretty significant. That set the tone for that, those, that year. But a little later, near the end of the year, there was this gas shortage that, that hit the country. The, uh, it was all kind of a thing with OPEC and Israel, but we were affected. And in just a, a week, gas prices quadrupled, or at least... The prices for the a barrel of, of oil uh, quadrupled. That went from $3 to $12 for a, a barrel of oil. Now we're like at, I don't know, $67 a barrel. So you could tell, you know, what's happened in 45 years. But uh, the, the, the gas prices went crazy. There wasn't enough gas. And there was like long lines, longer than lines at Costco for gas. And I find that hard to believe, right? But it was, it was kind of a crazy time. But then something happened the very next month that was even worse. This is how 1973 closed out. Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show was doing his opening monologue. He had 20 million viewers. And here's what he said. He said, you know, we've got all sorts of shortages these days, but have you heard the latest? I'm not kidding. I saw it in the paper. There is a shortage of toilet paper, right? A shortage of toilet paper. So what happened that night was everybody went into hysterics. And the very next morning, 20 million people went to their local stores and bought up and hoarded all of the toilet paper. Right? They're like, before this gets serious, I'm going to take care of my family. So they hoarded it. And the toilet you know, companies, uh, toilet paper companies, they don't know what's going on, but they're just, that's good news for them. Their stocks are probably going up. But Pretty soon, there just can't be enough uh, toilet paper for the nation. Everybody's hoarding it. There was even, this is a true story too, there was even a black market for toilet paper. People were bartering and trading it. In fact, one lady wrote in the newspaper, or they interviewed in the newspaper, she said that I had a, a baby shower and I told all my guests to bring their own toilet paper. Like that's how bad it was. But all of this was just a rumor. It was just a rumor. It wasn't true. There wasn't a shortage of toilet paper. Here's what had happened. Johnny Carson read the newspaper and it said this. The article said that the government was not able to secure a contract with toilet paper companies. And if they don't secure it soon, the military and the government buildings will not have enough toilet paper. All right? It was just that. But he heard it and created this rumor unintentionally that, that went across the nation. All right, these things happen. Happened to me this summer, okay? This last summer, I'm sitting at home. My son's uh, friend, he comes over, and he hears us talking about going to Costco, and here's what he says. He says, well, you better buy some whipped cream, 
I'm like, okay, like why? He's like, because didn't you hear? The whipped cream factory blew up and now there's a shortage of whipped cream. I'm like, seriously? I didn't know that. So I go to Costco and I never buy whipped cream. But you know that I bought a three pack that day just to be safe. Like, I just want to make sure I'm safe. You know, if this is true, I want to be, uh, have enough whipped cream. I mean, I didn't think it through that there's probably many factories that make whipped cream. In fact, we can make it at our house. It's not that hard, right? But I bought into this. It was just a rumor. It wasn't true. Same thing happened with me with sriracha, right? I heard that the, the building was on fire, so I went and bought some sriracha just to make sure I'm safe, all right? Any of this happen to you guys? I mean, these kinds of rumors, they... they they flutter around and they, they spark a reaction, right? Toilet paper, whipped cream, sriracha, they spark a reaction in us. But what about rumors about you? Rumors that were spread about you. What kind of a reaction did that make? Maybe like when you were junior high, high school, somebody spreading rumors. Maybe it was later in life. Maybe it was, it's at work. Maybe it's not even rumors. Maybe it's slander. Or maybe it's just plain opposition against you. These things happen. Our country thrives on rumors and speculation. And sooner or later, it's probably hit you and your family. How do you respond? Most of us, we respond the way we were modeled, the way that our, our, our bodies were built in the flesh, and we do a, one of two things, or maybe both. We, one, we worry, right? We worry. We, we can't sleep at night. We just think about what they said and about what that means for my reputation and how that's going to affect me and my, you know, what are people going to think? And we, we spend all of our time thinking about that. And maybe if we think long enough about it, then we start to believe it. Well, maybe there's something true. Maybe there's a, something true about that. And maybe I am something, you know, a bad person or whatever. But part of us worries about it. Another part of us, though, probably like, wants to attack, attack back. We think about that person that spread the rumor, or we think about who it could be, and we think, like, what kind of dirt can we find on them, and how can we say something to get them back? You go to your computer and you Google, like, how to hire a, a, a private investigator, you know, and you're trying to just see what you can do to get back at someone. And so probably there's, there's one of two things. It's that worry or like attack back. My question though, is if we are followers of Christ, if we are disciples, when or if this happens, how are we to respond? What's like the right way for a follower of Jesus to respond? To worry, to attack back, how do we defend ourselves at that time? And does the Bible speak to that? Well, fortunately for you, it does. It says a lot about that, but even in our passage today, this is what it's about. All right, pa the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Okay, remember he was in Philipp Philippi, and it didn't go very well there. In fact, it went very poorly there. Yes, people came to know Christ, but he was... He was attacked, he was beaten, he was put in jail, all illegally. But then the, came, the truth came out, and they just said, hey, just, can you just leave us alone? Can you just leave the city? The church was established, and so he left. He wanders into Thessalonica, probably still cut, bruised, and probably still hurting. And he walks in this town, and he could have just taken a personal retreat, 
You know, just like, hey, I'm just going to get a nice little house and just relax, heal, kind of get my strategy, figure out what's next, how to respond, and go from there. But Paul doesn't do that. He goes right back at it, starts preaching the gospel. People respond. Great things are happening. A church emerges, and it starts to, to grow, but pretty soon, faster than he'd like, he's asked to leave again. The opposition comes, and he leaves He's left, he moves out of the area, but his heart still longs for these people that he loves, that he loves desperately. He's wondering how they're doing. He would just die for just a message from them or a Facebook post. How they're doing, are they still hanging in there? Are they growing in their faith? Are they experiencing opposition? He's wondering how they're doing, but specifically, since he's left, there's been rumors flying. Rumors about him and his character, who he is, what his motivations were. They were saying things like, you know he was only after your money. You know that, right? He's a charlatan. He's a scam. All that stuff about Jesus made it up. He exaggerated. It's not true. He's just after your money, right? He's after your ladies. You know, he's just, he's a bad guy. It's better that he's gone. We did you a favor. You'll thank us later. Saying things like this and so Paul now, he's writing this letter, and he's now giving his defense. What would he say? How would he defend himself? The themes throughout this book, just real quick, there's just a few themes. One of them is facing, how, do, how, does, how does someone face opposition and stay faithful to God and even grow in their faith until Christ returns? There's this whole theme of the return of Christ and staying faithful to that. So there's, there's that theme. There's another theme of this example and being uh, imitating him. Right? Even Jesus says, by your love, all men will know that you're my disciples, saying that you guys should, should be able to um, impact the world just by your lives, right? The way you live. And Paul has been saying, follow me as I follow Christ and follow this example and follow the Lord. So there's this theme of being an example, but then there's a theme of walking with the Lord. He says, I want you to walk with the Lord throughout your life. And here in this passage, he kind of hits on all three of those themes. Saying, when there's opposition, I want you not only to survive, but to grow. I want you to follow my example, but above everything else, I want you to walk with the Lord. So let's look at this passage from this perspective. But here's what I really want you guys to see. Here's what I want you guys to, to go home with. That during these hard times, during times of opposition, whether it's rumors or slander or just people standing against you, how do you respond? Well, he gives us kind of a, a few things here. He says that when the hard time comes, I want you to be a motivating example to others by putting God first, putting him first, sacrificially loving others and walking humbly with God. This is what I want your perspective to be, that when the hard times come, put God first. Love others. Don't stop loving others and look to yourself, but love others and continue to walk with the Lord. Follow this example. Let's look at the passage. I'm going to read it for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 and go to verse 12. And, and just notice, I think about five times throughout here, he says, you know this, right? You've seen this. God is my witness. 
right? His defense right off the beginning is his lifestyle. Here's what he says. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't by accident, right? But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Gracious Father, I pray that the words of your scriptures would penetrate our hearts, that it would speak to us, that it would comfort those who are going through hard times, but it would also guide all of us and remind us how we are to live today, putting you first and walking with you. Father, guide us as we continue our time together. We ask this in your name. Amen. So first thing we see is to be motivated to please God above everyone and anything else. First thing, when, when times like this happen, when the hard times come, the first thing you got to do is say, who is my audience? Who am I trying to please? Man? Myself? Or is it God? And Paul says right off the bat, it's clear it should be clear who my audience is. It should be clear who the one I'm living for. All right? My motivation is to please God before everything else. He said, so we speak all of our words, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Okay, what's that look like? Well, let's look at the opposite. To, to please man. If Paul were out to please man, he would be very concerned about what the people are saying. I mean, he would probably tailor his message, tweak it a little bit to be, to be more uh, receptive, more palatable to, to the audience. So instead of saying, hey, Christ demands everything, he demands your whole life, your loyalty, you got to change the way you think and how you act and what you, what you say, how you live. Instead of saying that, he would just say, well, worship God when it's convenient, love Jesus when you can. Right? He would say, maybe say things like, well, Jesus loves you, and he has so much to offer you. You should receive him today. But 
come to church when you can, when it's convenient. That would be something along the lines of what it would look like to please man. But he says, no, 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 no. Because to be a follower of Jesus is not easy. It's not easy. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But it demands everything. It changes everything. So he's clearly not out trying to win the approval of man. But nor is he trying to win the approval or, or to, to, to please himself. Right? He says clearly, he's like, we didn't come with words of flattery, as you know, or any pretext for greed. That was some of the accusations that were made, right? He's out there for your money. He's trying to get stuff from you. So he can take care of himself. He's like, you know, you know I didn't do that. See, because flattery is, it's like this over-evaluation of someone. It's, it's really, it's like, like super going, pouring it on thick on how wonderful somebody is. But it's not out of love or admiration. It's out of jealousy. All right, when you flatter someone, it's like you are so jealous of who they are, but you're going to pour it on thick so that they will like you and so that they'll behave favorably for you. You give them a good favor of flattering them, and then they'll turn around and talk about how good you are to other people or things like that, right? That's flattery. But it comes from contempt, not out of love. He's like, I, wouldn't, I didn't do that either. I'm not just trying to get things for myself. You know this. Man is not my audience. I am not my audience. I'm not trying to please man. I'm not trying to please me. I'm trying to please the Lord. But that's not easy, is it? Paul says, he says, I seek to please the Lord. And he adds this, who tests our hearts. Who tests our hearts. How many of you like tests? Anybody out there like a glutton for punishment? Like, I love tests. I love taking it. I see a few of you looking like, yeah, I kind of like tests. You don't have to raise your hand. But most of us do not. Okay? Something that's not something we look forward to. But what does this mean when he says that he tests our heart? Well, it's this idea that our, like we said earlier, the flesh just that we were born into, our culture, everything around us pulls us away from seeking him. We try to seek recognition and fame and admiration from those people around us. We like to be slapped on the back. We like to be praised. We like people to think well of us. Of course we do. That's just who we are. But when we seek to please God, that stuff doesn't matter. That's not our concern. I don't care if people love me. I don't care if they think well of me. I'm concerned that am I doing right in the eyes of God. I, that's my concern. Do I earn his favor? Do I earn his pleasure in the way that I live my life? It's two different things. But that's hard. Part of it is because I... I, I can, you know, I can feel a pat on the back. I can hear someone say, you're so great. You're so wonderful. I can feel that. I hear it. I can absorb it. But with God, with pleasing him, some of that stuff is delayed. I don't hear it in my mind. I don't feel the pat on my back. I, I have to wait for that. that. That wait, I have to delay it until I reach heaven. I have to have faith that I'm going to be rewarded for that. Have you ever done something good? 
and someone says, you just earned a jewel in your crown in heaven. You ever heard that? All right, I've heard it, and that inspires me none. There's nothing for me. All right, a jewel in my crown, great. Like, I don't have a crown. I've, I got a crown like, like Burger King when I was a little kid, but that like digs into your ears and hurts. That's, that's annoying. All right, I, I don't like wearing like flashy things like jewels, so that doesn't really do anything for me. But I don't know what that means. Like, yeah, I know there's like crowns of righteousness and all that, but it's, I don't know what that is. I have to, I, I'll figure that out someday in heaven and I'm going to be thrilled for it. But right now, it's hard because it's delayed. I have to wait. We like that which is now and here and tangible. Pleasing man is tangible, but pleasing God is something delayed. We don't hear it, we don't see it, we don't feel it, but we got to believe it's there. A few years ago, there was a documentary out called Searching for Sugar Man. Anybody seen it? Uh, it's about a musician back in the late 60s who was like, he was hailed to be like the next uh, uh, Bob Dylan, that kind of character. Crazy talent, crazy talent, and his songwriting was like off the charts. He kind of had a bite to his lyrics, kind of this disestablishmentarianism kind of thing, and he was kind of a, you know, was, uh, had all these thought-provoking questions. So he was finally recorded. They had his first album put out called Cold Facts, and they were expecting it to blow up, to be huge, and it made no impact at all in the music industry, nothing. A couple of people heard it and said, well, we still got to do another one because for whatever reason, it wasn't the right time, whatever. It's, he's so good, we got to get him out there. So they, they, uh, they released another album and it made even less of a splash. It's two days, or sorry, two weeks before Christmas, his label released him. And here's a guy who had all the talent in the world and was just lost. It was nothing. Made no impact at all in the United States. So he left the music industry, started doing some construction, demolition in Detroit, spent his whole career doing that. For 20 years, he get, gave up, he walked away from the music industry. 25 years, just did construction. But little did he know, he had no idea, nobody knew, that he was a legend on the other side of the world. In South Africa, and this is a true story, South Africa, his music was, was more popular than the Beatles, than the Rolling Stones, than Elvis. Like, he was the most popular musician in South Africa. Why? Because they were going through apartheid. So when the young people heard his music and the questions he was asking and that grit that he had, they clung on to it. And they were making copies of it, you know, giving it away. The government, they, they banned his music, or certain songs anyway. But he sold millions of albums in South Africa. But he didn't know. He didn't get any royalties from it, nothing, right? When apartheid ended, the internet came about. They thought he was dead. They thought, he, seriously, there was rumors, all these rumors about how he killed himself, how he burned himself on stage, all these crazy things. They started to look for his family or what could they find out about him, but little did they, they just found out that he's alive. He's doing construction in Detroit. So they kind of get a hold of him. A journalist gets a hold of him, and they, they, they arrange for him to come to South Africa for a concert, for a series of concerts. He agrees. 
And his family is just like, just please let there be 20 people there. Like, let it just be 20. He shows up, and there's thousands of people in the, in the stadium. The stadium is packed. He does sold-out shows all across the country. People of, across the country, people of all ages coming to him. And there's this clip on the documentary where before he can even sing a song or play a note, it's like 10 minutes of ovations from the crowd to him. Isn't that crazy? He thought that his life meant nothing musically, but here it is, it inspired a country to end segregation. I, I say that because when I look at that, I wonder that's kind of like how a lot of us Christians feel, that when we seek to please God, we feel like we're doing all this to please him, we're doing all this to please him, but it amounts to nothing. Nobody responds, nobody cares. We kind of feel like we got nothing to contribute to our society. But little do we know what's happening in heaven, how the angels are singing your praises, how they're thrilled at what you are doing, how you are putting Jesus first in your life. We don't know what awaits us when we enter into heaven, but friends, it's good. It's powerful. So when the attacks come, one thing you want to do is defend yourself. You want to do all that kind of stuff. You want to maybe please yourself, please man, for trying to defend yourself. But here Paul just says, my aim is just, i got to please God. First and foremost, that's it. But he doesn't stop there. See, some people stop there, right? They just say, I'm here to please Jesus, and I don't care about what you say or about anything else. They're kind of jerks. They're like spiritual jerks, right? Have you met people like that? Paul doesn't do that. He goes on. And I think this is beautiful. He says, not only did I put Jesus first in my life, I modeled sacrificial love to you. I put you above myself. I loved you to the, to the last end of my being, to the, all of my strength. I went into pouring my love out for you. Sometimes when we face times like this, we want to pull inward and we want to think just about ourselves take care of ourselves. And Paul says, times like that, I'm going to please Jesus and I'm going to love other people. I'm going to keep doing what I always do. I'm just going to love, love, love. Take care of other people. That's be my testimony. He says, when he came to this church, he could have pulled the entitlement card, said, I'm an apostle. You guys got to take care of my food, find me some housing, get me some transportation, take care of Timothy and Silas. Take care of all of our needs. Make our beds. <laughs> he could have done that. Others did. Rabbis did throughout the time. They came to teach. They were taken care of. He's like, I didn't do that. No, we worked night and day. We were tent makers. We literally, like they were tent makers. They made tents, like getting leather. And I don't know what you got to do to all that, but I know it's not easy. He tells them, we toiled night and day working so that we could earn a living so that you didn't have to support us, so that you didn't have to worry about us. We did that. He gives a, a simile here. It says we were like a, a mother nursing her child. But we were gentle among you like a mother, a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Let's think about that. 
Here Paul is defending himself, and he says, I'm like a breastfeeding mother to you. Hardly like the strong stereotypical statement. But I wonder what the people, what the church, what they remembered when he said that. How he provided for them. How he fed them. How he cared for them. How he nurtured them. How he protected them. Even at the point when the opposition came and the heat came to that church, he took it. He said, all right, I'll leave. I'll leave. To give his congregation, the church, some time to grow. What a beautiful picture of love, isn't it? He could have just turned and take care of himself, done his retreat. Him, Timothy, Silas just said, let's just take, take some time off. But he didn't do that. Because his aim was to please God and to love the people that God put in his life. He says, here's how I loved you. I gave you two things. I gave you the gospel and I gave you my life. I gave you the gospel. Like, really, what's the, what's the most loving thing that you can do to someone? When you know there's an eternity ahead, there's an eternity that has two options. It's not three. On a choose-your-own-adventure, it's two options. It's heaven or it's hell. What's the most loving thing you can give to somebody? Well, the gospel, right? And he said, this is how I loved you. I gave you the gospel, first and foremost. There's a pastor in Ohio. His name is Alistair Begg. And he told his congregation this. He said, this is how you'll know that I have stopped loving you. This is how you'll know that I stopped giving you Jesus, that I stopped giving you the gospel. The day that I stopped giving you the gospel is the day that you know that I don't love you anymore. But I'm going to keep giving it to you. I think for us as pastors, too, that's, that's our heart. And this is how we show our love for you. We want to give you the gospel. We want to give you Jesus. And if we ever stop, you ask us that. You say, Ethan, why would you stop loving me? Because you're not giving me Jesus anymore. I don't want that other stuff. Give me Jesus. And Paul says, I gave you Jesus, but I gave you my life. I poured it out for you. I don't know what that means, because here's a guy who worked all night, all day, building tents. And then he comes and he gives them the gospel. I don't know how much time he had to go to the birthday parties, <laughs> to go to dinners, you know, to go hang out at movies or whatever they did. I don't know how much time he had, but I know that he gave them the gospel. He gave them his life. And that's all they could ask for. He loved them deeply. See, we have this, this built-in system of protection. So when the attack comes, we protect ourselves. But Paul says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to love you guys. I'm going to keep pouring out my love on you. And the last thing he says is he encourages others to follow him as he walks with the Lord. And for us... That's important, and this is really the main passage. This is the main part of it. Now, as Christians, first and foremost, we walk with the Lord. We walk with the Lord in a manner worthy of the Lord during the good times so that we can walk with Him through the hard times. 
He says, I was like a father to you. Like a father to his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He exhorted, encouraged, charged. He didn't force. He didn't suggest. Somewhere in the middle. Like a father who's encouraging his son, exhorting him and charging him, helping him to see the future and what lies out there. He says, I'm going to encourage you to walk with the Lord. What does that mean? Well, walking with the Lord is a theme throughout Scripture. We see it all over. See it from the very beginning. In Genesis 5, we have Enoch who walked with the Lord. Right? And then in chapter 6, Noah walked with the Lord. And so on throughout the Scriptures, you see this call of all these people walking with the Lord. In Deuteronomy, some of these famous verses in Deuteronomy, it says... And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But the fear of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And Micah, the end of the Old Testament, says the same thing. He says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is a call throughout Scripture for all followers of God, for all Christians, to walk with the Lord. So how do we do that? First, you got to know who you are. And I hope you know this. I hope if you are a follower of Jesus, I hope you know this, that you are a child of God, that you have been saved and redeemed. You have been loved to the end, that Christ died for you. He brought you into the family, into his kingdom. You are an ambassador of Christ sent out to this world to tell others about the identity that they can have in Christ. That is you. You have all of that. You have the passionate love of God, the love of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So before we walk, we got to know who we are. We are the children of God and we walk with him. How do we walk with him? We're told, Paul writes in Colossians, he says, walk worthy of the Lord to please him. And we say, well, what pleases him? We're told in Hebrews that faith pleases him. To have faith. To have faith that when those accusations come, when the oppression comes, when those oppose you come, have faith that God's got you, that he knows you, that he's caring for you, that he will guide you. To have faith that when you say, all right, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to put you first, and I'm going to love others, I'm not going to protect myself, I'm I'm just going to keep loving and keep giving the gospel to other people. I'm going to have faith that you, you got me. There's a future that is far better than anything I can receive today. To know that you are called into a relationship, that you walk with him. You just get to know him. He says that he's like a nursing mother. He's an encouraging father. What a beautiful example for us. For someone who has taken the heat who's literally getting beat up. And this is how he responds. This is the example that he shows us. It's beautiful. He seeks God. He's going to continue to love others. He's going to continue to walk. Don't wait 
until the persecution comes and then say, well, now I got to figure out how to walk with God. Learn it now. Build the habit of learning scripture, sitting with him, knowing his voice, hearing the, the spirits uh, nudging and work in your life. Learn that now so that when the hard times come, it's second nature. You know how to walk with the Lord. Friends, there's rumors spread all the time. In the 70s, the rumors. Today, there's rumors. You might go home today, and there might be something on your Facebook feed that says, all the toothpaste factories blew up, right? And you're going to want to say, oh, I should go hoard some toothpaste. I should go to the store right now. Don't believe it. Uh, it's just a rumor. You might go home and hear that Chick-fil-A is open on Sundays now, right? Don't believe it. This is a rumor. It'd be great, but it's a rumor. You might hear that Chick-fil-A sauce is like healthy for you. <laughs> Don't believe it. It's good. It's not healthy. You might hear like, hey, you're starting to do your taxes and you're like, oh, there's a new tax reform. And, and now for those of you who live in California, you don't have to pay any taxes. Don't even worry about it. It's a rumor, right? It's a rumor. Don't believe it. But when you hear the rumor about you, questioning your motives, questioning who you are, don't believe it. Because if you walk with the Lord today, and you could sit here like Paul and just say, you know how I was. I don't have to spend my time defending myself. I love Jesus. I put him first. I loved others. And I'm walking with the Lord. That's, all I, that's my defense. That's all I got to do. And I might not receive praise and admiration here on earth, but it's waiting for me. It's waiting for me in heaven, and that's what matters. Amen?